Welcome to the Knowing Podcast. We're here to talk about healing, about insight, about cultivating and living from our own internal wisdom, and about the intention to live beautifully and compassionately as a human being during these times. We're really happy you're here. So I've shared on the podcast before that of the five years that I spent studying with my primary teacher, the teacher who initiated me into her lineage, I spent just over, I think, somewhere between two and two and a half years of that time learning one thing, learning it very slowly and eventually effectively. But um, that one thing was patience. I... <laughs> This, this maybe speaks volumes about my character and, and hopefully will um, frame me as uh, maybe a good teacher because I was such a disaster going into this work um, and into these practices that my teacher offered. Because when I first met my teacher, um, and I've, I've shared this sort of in initial encounter that we had and, and my early experiences with her, but right away, she started talking to me about the necessity of me cultivating patience. And my perspective at that point was that patience was something that only ineffective people needed to develop. And you are totally allowed and should probably appropriately judge me right now for that perspective. But this is really what I thought was that um, I was such an effective person and I could do so many things so quickly that there was absolutely no need for me to develop patience because that was, you know, it was unnecessary, basically. It was a, a skill that was only for weak-minded people. And yes, I was a completely arrogant, um, we'll call it asshole, uh, at this point in my life. But I also had this I, I don't even know why, but I, I think maybe I was born with it. But this sort of intensity that I approached life with where I had, you know, at one point nine jobs and was going to school and, and ended up, you know, with two broken legs and a bleeding ulcer because I didn't know how to stop. I didn't know how to slow down. And there was just this this drive in me, this compulsion towards doing more and doing faster. And, you know, I, I was this sort of poster child of the modern world, I think. But when my teacher first brought this to my attention, I mean, really, my response to her was like, yeah, no, I don't think I need that. I think that's for other people. And you need to teach me how to be more efficient and more effective so that I can get more done. And, and I mean, I held out on that perspective, I think, for quite a while. I imagine I can go back through my old journals and, and find evidence of, of maintaining that and trying to, you know, make her wrong and myself right. But eventually, I really started to clue in. I think I started noticing uh, just how pervasive my impatience was and, and really the physiological impact of it. The, the feeling of it in my body started to become more and more apparent to me. Um, and I, I guess it manifested clearly as anxiety, clearly as intolerance with people and situations. And I started to be become more and more aware of just how this was actually impacting me. And, and maybe that my drive towards greater, quote unquote, efficiency was actually impacting me as well. So, so, I mean, this, this 
opened my mind eventually I, I became aware of of my impatience and aware of the necessity of shifting it but then it was you know like contacting this behemoth of a a character trait and an energetic pattern in myself and, and cognitive pattern that I really didn't know what to do with and my teacher was amazing is amazing you know and and offered me many amazing tools but when it came to patience you know it was a really difficult one because the way that the teachings went was basically I would meet her. She would say, you need to be more patient. I'd say, how do you do that? And she'd say, you just be more patient, you know. And and so um, I suppose this drove me into learning about practices around patience. I mean, it is a tricky, tricky practice. This is the last tool that we're going to explore in this series in terms of what I would propose you need, you must cultivate in order to be able to both traverse the initiatory experience, um, the, the the crisis that, that portends, you know, the maturation of ourselves into our spiritual selves, our spiritually mature selves. Um, but also, I believe that patience, and, and I think especially now that I, I do feel like I am a very patient person. Certainly I have times when I feel less patient and I must practice more intensely. Um, but generally I feel that I have um, cultivated a really deep and abiding and meaningful relationship with, with patience as a virtue, patience as a practice. Um, and I wanted to offer to you, I suppose, what I've found along the path and what has been meaningful for me, and uh, you know, this is likely to be a fairly short episode because there isn't actually a lot to practice <laughs> and uh, deliberate stuff, you know, to do in order to cultivate patience. It is the exercising of the patience itself that cultivates patience, you know. So, um, but I, I don't want to leave you like that, as my teacher did, um, and I wanted to offer a little bit more framing for you because. This one's important, and this, like mindfulness, like mental and cognitive presencing, it really forms the bedrock, the, the basis of that future self. The person who is connected with their soul has a fundamental faith in process, in the unfolding of experiences, in you know what occurs in our lives, and we, despite what these sort of egomaniacal perspectives of modern civilization want to propose for us, a person who has power and who is um, aligned and, and truly with themselves and, and connected to their soul is not imposing their will upon the world, right? We've been sold this idea that power is about control. Power is about making things happen the way we want them to happen and at the time that we want them to happen. But in fact, power in the shamanic tradition, and, and I guess I can't speak with any eloquence um, in terms of this in Buddhism, but because uh, it's not really a principle that's talked about a lot um, as I've encountered it, but power in the shamanic sense is is really what we utilize to um, manage ourselves. We don't use our power to manage or control other people. I mean, you can call that witchcraft or uh, Wiccan practice, or you know, there there are certain you know so-called dark practitioners that will use their power to control things in the outside world. Um, but there's there's a cost to that, and and that's not something that I 
that's not a realm I practice in by any means. And I experience power as the energy that we utilize to create impeccability within ourselves, to really become aware of how we are showing up, how we are thinking and acting and feeling, and and are we giving to others what we want to receive, and are we living within um, and in alignment with the principles that we have committed to. It is not about controlling things, right? And our modern world has taught us that power is all about controlling things. And we seem to be talking about power all the time. Who has power? How do we get power back? You know, how do we put different, more diverse people in positions of power? And and I, I would propose that this is a kind of losing pursuit and losing game because it, it doesn't matter who's in those positions of power. We are still fundamentally, I think, using the human mind and um, placing ourselves in the wrong place. We're using the mind wrong, and we are we are assuming that we have a responsibility in this world that I don't think we have. Um, and I think that it actually it comes at great cost to us to assume this position where we think that our job here as humans is to control things rather than to be um, some sort of servant to the system, to God, to, the, to whatever you want to call it, Right, the the higher intelligence that m- controls and and manages everything, and and in order to come into right relationship with that systematic intelligence, we have to be patient. Right? Patience and faith are deeply interwoven. When you think about this, right? Pa- impatience. Maybe we'll start there. Impatience is. The practice of saying what is happening right now is not happening at the right time or should not be happening at all or is not occurring at the the appropriate pace. It is us saying that what is should not be, right? Is the it's a an incredible distortion, as I've mentioned before, that emanates from the left hemisphere of us imposing our will, our brain's idea of what things should be and how they should happen upon the world. And I think. I really think this is kind of tragic, you know, and and I I hope that it's not too intense of a word to use. But when we do this, right, we are centering ourselves as the primary intelligence in in our lives, right? We we say that we know what's good for us, basically, through saying, you know, this should not be happening. I, I don't want this to be happening. We are saying we know what should be happening. And this removes, when you think about it, you know, all the potential for mystery and magic and, and um, you know, faith, really, in our processes, because we're constantly trying to impose our will upon the world and, and also, you know, ironically, creating a, an enormous amount of suffering in ourselves because we're constantly saying, no, 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 I don't want this. It shouldn't be happening like this. I, you know, I, I need to get to work and, I'm, you know, everything, the traffic's going too slow and I know when I, you know, things should be going, right? And granted, yes, I'm a very timely person. I think we should get to work on time. But when things happen, you know, I, I recently, well, last year I had a flat tire driving to work and it was such an extraordinary experience. Um where I was sitting in the car on a dirt road, tires flat, I 
barely had like one bar of a signal on my phone so I could text my boss and send her a message just saying, you know, I'm down 20 minutes down the road and I don't know what to do. And she just said, okay, I'll come get you. And as I was sitting there waiting for her, I was actually reflecting on the practices that I had used historically to help me have peace in situations like this. And one of the things that I used to do, and I would offer this to you as a practice as a kind of stepping stone, okay? I don't want you to think that this is a good place to stay. It's more like a mental acrobatics practice or um, a way of kind of playing with your own mind so that it doesn't get so righteous and rigid, you know, which I think creates a lot of impatience is because we're constantly saying, I don't want this to happen. Um, I would play this trick on my mind where when something unexpected and probably a little bit unpleasant, like getting a flat tire would happen, I would tell myself that it was preventing something bad from happening. Okay. And I hope you can feel into that and and think into that as a practice that why I don't think that this is is a good place to stay. I wouldn't propose that you want to do this all the time. It just allows for this kind of um, break in that narrative that emerges from our mind saying this is not supposed to be happening, right? It's a way of saying, well, I don't know. You don't know. You don't know if it's supposed to be happening or not. And And so I used to tell myself, you know, that when I don't know, um, I would get in a traffic jam and be like, well, maybe this is preventing me from getting in an accident or something bad happening down the road. And and if I think if we stay there as a practice and keep thinking that way, it can actually create a lot of paranoia. And I don't think that that's a good thing to do for ourselves. But maybe as just a kind of uh, a transitory patience process or practice, this can do two things, right? As I mentioned, it can flip your mind so that it it no longer is so obsessed with saying it knows how things should happen and at what time it should happen. But it also affirms faith. And I, you know, I'm, I'm as I've said before many times probably, I am not a particularly religious person, even though I affiliate my, my perspectives and philosophy with certain lineages. Um, I, I consider myself to be very uh, cognitive. I like to think about things. I think that religions are beautiful. I think that the, um, you know, I was listening to Jonathan Haidt speaking late, uh, recently, and he was talking about the God-sized hole in each of us. And this is a real thing that I think that, you know, modern civilization is attempting to fill with technology, with this sense of control, with with righteousness, you know, in a bizarre kind of moral way, um, with consumption with consumerism, right? The God-sized hole exists in all of us. And if it is not filled with faith in a God, you know, and I don't care who you want to call that. I think God is a great name for it. Yahweh, you know, all that is the great mystery. It does not matter to me. It's just, I think it, it matters that we recognize that this is an innate aspect of our character as human beings, that we have a need for connection to an intelligence that is larger and more wise and more comprehensive and all-seeing than us. And, you know, Tom Robbins has this beautiful quote that, you know, he says, I'll butcher this, but, uh, you know, the God that I believe in is the one that causes butterflies to fly north in the summer and south in the winter. And and uh, that to me is is no different than, you know, I think the way I think of a Christian God or a, any kind of God, it is the God that coordinates the system, right? And I don't know how to get butterflies to fly north in the summer, and I'm pretty sure you don't either. And that's that's 
good, right? And so when we practice letting our minds kind of take the backseat to a higher intelligence, the ego hates this because it wants to say how things should go and it wants control. That is the basic uh, desire and and purpose of the ego is to find control. And this it was good for us in childhood to, to have that, but we must transition out of that. And to do that, we have to have faith in something larger. And that's, you know, the second thing that happens, I think, with this process of saying, well, maybe this unexpected event is actually uh, preventing something else bad from happening, um, is, is that we get to say, something is guiding this process, something loves me, and, and I mean, this is a very difficult thing because as the Buddhists teach that, you know, we, we also have to make peace with the fact that this loving guiding force that coordinates all things in this universe also creates sickness and death and suffering and, and all of these horrible experiences. And can we make peace with the fact that sickness and death does not mean that we are not loved or supported or, or you know, connected to all that is and that this system doesn't have intelligence. Can we um, cognitively surpass that and, and sort of, I suppose, integrate it in a sense that the, the system, God, whatever, can be loving and in, wise and intelligent and still have sickness and death and suffering, right? And I know that's a big ask, but that is what our our, I think this is what our neocortex is really built for, is integrating and being able to hold those kind of opposing perspectives at the same time and be okay with it, right? So to go back to me sitting in my car, I realized when I was sitting there last year, you know, that I no longer needed to do that. I didn't need the mental acrobatics in a sense to be able to just sit. And there was this, this quiet. And I mean, certainly I'm sitting on a dirt back road, you know, in the Kerbuchakoten area of BC. So it was really bloody quiet in, in total, you know, but there was birds and, and things happening. But there, I realized as I was sitting there, there was this absolute quiet inside of me. And as I mentioned, I don't like being late for things. Like I really don't. I'm a neurotically early person all the time. Um, I really respect other people's times and I want them to respect mine. And it's something that's very important to me. But I couldn't do anything about this. I didn't make this happen, right? There was no need for me to be anxious because I didn't need to blame it on anybody or worry about anything. I mean, it, you know, random things happen. But the the quality of quiet and the silence within me was so remarkable that I actually didn't want it to end. And I, I was so appreciative, <laughs> I know this sounds crazy, of this unexpected and unwanted event happening. And and it was such a strange sort of moment, and I've had many of these, I think, in my lifetime, and I'm sure that you probably have too, where we see that something unexpected actually offered something beautiful, right? And, and that is, I think, another sort of um, component of having faith in life is like me getting Lyme disease. I would never have said that, yay, I want to get Lyme disease. This is going to be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And yet it was. It was the most transformative and and pivotal event and, well, series of events that I ever went through, right? And so if we don't have patience, we do not get to get in contact with that stillness, with that quiet. Right? With that ability to say what is must be 
and I can surrender to it, right? And I mean, this is, as I've mentioned many times, I think on the podcast, the essence of the divine feminine. When people talk about the loss of the divine feminine, I really don't experience this as, oh, the patriarchy and everybody got, you know, the men took over and then we dominated women. I think that was a secondary manifestation of what was actually happening within our own minds was that we've we've lost God, we've we've assumed this arrogant position as human beings that is the masculine, if you will. We will affiliate it with the left hemisphere and this idea of like, I'm going to go control the world and make things happen the way I want them to happen, right? That could all be associated with the masculine. That's not, it's not bad, but the masculine not rooted in or held by the feminine, which is the right hemisphere, the capacity to meet all that is without breaking it apart into its separate pieces, the capacity to surrender to a will larger than us, that is the basis, right? The, the feminine hold, must hold the masculine. And the loss of the feminine is, is again, it's not just a loss of you know, female intelligence, although I think fem- females, we generally tend to have a an easier time accessing this wisdom and this uh, surrendered position, I think just because of maybe the biological realities that we must go through in terms of having menstrual cycles and being pregnant and giving birth, these are not things that you get to control. Although look at modern medicine constantly trying to control it, right? We, I think females are more susceptible in a sense to to these um, kind of uncomfortable biological realities and thus we must learn how to surrender. And yeah, that's been lost too. But all of us have lost this contact with the feminine, with the ability to surrender. And that, in my journey into patience, was a, a great revelation to me, was that patience is the, it's, it's a muscle that is connected to and expressive of surrender to a will that is larger than your own. And, and again, we don't get told that this is important. I think a lot in society, we get told that, you know, it's all about power and, you know, saying what you want and and being clear in the world and and controlling things and and manifesting. I, 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 I know people manifest for sure. Our consciousness is constantly engaging with the material world and making things happen. But this, um, I think, very solipsistic and quite narcissistic emphasis on I'm going to go get what I want in the world is, is, again, so tragic to me because you, I say this to clients all the time, I say it to myself, you do not know what is good for you. And I'm not saying that in any sort of judgmental sense, but we, our minds want to tell us, you know, I want to be I don't know, treated this way and everybody should treat me this way. And if they don't, then I get to get mad at them. Right. But maybe our ego minds are not really what we should be listening to. Right. Maybe they don't know what's good for us. And and it's very difficult to actually <laughs> discriminate between, you know, the ego mind and what it's telling us we want and how, what time it should be happening at. And, and I, what I would call the embodied intelligence, you know, the somatic intelligence, our wise selves in our bodies. Um, there's a, a lot of work that has to be done for us to actually disengage from the ego mind and to be able to tell the difference between when it is speaking and when the body mind is speaking. But on the way there, I think the to get to that place where we can trust our inner wisdom, we must practice patience. And this is, I think, to go back to the very beginning, why my teacher emphasized this so strongly and why she really would not teach me anything else until I had it. 
And so tool number one to practice this is, is try some mental acrobatics. Try telling your mind that maybe you don't know what's good for you. And I know that seems harsh, and, and I hope you can hear that as lovingly as I mean it, that this is not about oppressing ourselves, but of just asking some questions, right? Of like, do I know? Do I know what's good for me? Um, and and maybe you don't. And, and then what kind of response comes from that, right? Is I think a lot of the anxiety that we're feeling as modern humans is because we think we have more control than we actually do. And we think we should have more control than I think we actually should. And, and that there's so much freedom in surrender, in releasing this sense of needing to control and dominate and dictate to the world how it should go all the time. I think that creates anxiety, right? It's, it's perpetuating anxiety because anxiety is this expression from our emotional and energetic bodies that something is happening that we don't know how to respond to right and and if you tell your if your mind is telling you all the time that you can control how people perceive you how the world treats you uh, you can't that's not possible but if your mind is telling you that that's even possible it's going to create a massive amount of anxiety because you're constantly in the situation of coming into contact with something that you will not be able to control. And, and how do we reverse this, right? How do we pull back from this egotism of the modern world, pull back into surrender, into grace, into being able to um, recognize a will larger than our own, to, to humility, right? I mean, patience is so committed or connected to humility as, as a virtue, as a way of being in the world where we say something else is more intelligent than me. I think I've shared this in the podcast before. I was talking to my partner about this a couple of days ago, and I think it's such a beautiful teaching from shamanic wisdom that we come onto this path often because we are um, hurting or we're confused or we feel uncertain of our worth or our space in the world. And the path, uh, the teachings say, yes, come here and you will learn how to connect with yourself, how to feel powerful in the world, how to find your medicine. You know, all the shit that I say to you, you know, is, yeah, come here, come do this work. And I think I mentioned before that, you know, it's said in shamanic practice that you kind of have to trick people onto this path because it's a really hard path. It's it's not an easy journey of, you know, really looking at yourself and coming into impeccability and showing up in a beautiful way in your world. But as you come onto the path, you think that you're pursuing power. And we understand power again in the way that our modern world frames it is like, I'm going to get everything I want and I'm gonna you know demand that the world pays me to do what I am and blah, you know like we we have a very egotistical kind of conceptualization of power and as we travel along the path and we learn to use the power to call ourselves into question to to look at our judgments and the way that we are looking at other people and whether we are aligning with compassion and kindness and and how we are showing up right we we recognize that the power is, you start to know, you know, as you walk the path, it's like, oh, maybe that's not, that's actually not the power I wanted was the power to control other people. I want to use it internally. And it's said in, you know, in, in true mastery, when a person has achieved mastery and they've come into their full alignment, they are doing, saying, thinking, feeling all the same thing all the time. They are in alignment with the system. 
they have power. They have the ability to change things, to impact the world, right? But in, unless you have been trained in sort of more manipulative lineages, and I promise you that that's not what I do work in, um, you you arrive at this place of mastery and you realize that you don't want to change anything because everything around you is smarter than you are. And you that humility says, I don't even want power, even though I have, even though you have power to impact, to make change happen that you think should be happening, you don't want to do that anymore because the the magic of being immersed and and in faith with the system is so big and so wonderful that you don't want to give it up, right? And it's it's kind of ironic that, yeah, we come onto the path thinking this is what we want. And it, we when we get it, we don't want it anymore. And, and it's, I think, quite beautiful. So, so the other tool I would offer, and, and again, I apologize for the sort of inanity of, of saying this, but to think of patience like a muscle. And, and this is a really Buddhist teaching. And I can't remember, there was a, there was a, a teacher from, you know, the sixth century or something. And I can't remember who it was, but he, the, the teaching was basically, you know, training myself to meet small disturbances or small, um, uncomfortable experiences. I ultimately uh, train myself to meet great atrocities with equanimity or something like that. I always butcher quotes and I apologize to the teachers and to anyone who's listening and wishing that I would quote it more accurately, but I don't have it here with me. I apologize. But basically the, you know, the idea is what's important, I think, is that Think of patience like a muscle, something that you have to exercise, just like you would exercise a muscle at the gym. You're going to lift a small weight first, and you're going to do it repetitively, and that's going to strengthen the muscle, and then you can work with larger and larger things, right? There was certainly, um, the majority of my adult life would have, um, I would have responded to a flat tire as I was driving to work as like the end of the world catastrophe. Like nothing could be worse and I would have been freaking out. I mean, I, I spent most of my adult life freaking out, you know, and, and again, thinking that it was mostly because I was just not being efficient. But, you know, to get to that point, and it, that's actually a pretty small thing, quite frankly, to have a flat tire on the side of the road is not really a big deal. Nobody was dying or sick or whatever. But, um, we train ourselves through working with small things to be able to deal with larger and larger disturbances. I mean, I mean, in the Buddhist tradition, this is ultimately to have faith at the moment of death so that your consciousness abides, you know, and, and stays present as you transition out of this experience, out of this dimensional experience into the next. And so you, you can remain conscious and, and kind of be aware as you move into the bardo state, right? So, I, you know, that's the ultimate challenge is our own death. But on the way there, there are many, many, many disturbances and uncomfortable experiences that are going to happen that we want to be able to respond with patience and, and surrender and faith with, right? Or would too. Um, so think about things like standing in a grocery line, right? Or you're waiting on the phone with um, uh, the phone company, which is always a really good thing. Or some some other minor disturbance where your mind is saying, this shouldn't be happening like this, right? It is so hard to do this work right now because of the rapidity of our modern civilization, 
we have prioritized speed, right? We have this, uh, you know, aggrandized ego, I, the egotistical kind of way of working with the world. I mean, Chris, look at the, the what's the slogan from Facebook? You know, move fast and break things. Basically, like we are, we're actually um, putting this way of being up on some sort of pinnacle as like, this is the best way to be a human is to go out and force your will upon the world and make things happen. And even if you make crazy shit happen as a result of it that doesn't really matter because um you know it's all about efficiency it's all about speed it's all about technology and development right and and so to come out of that is exceptionally difficult i think in conversation with allison i shared at one point that you know that many buddhist teachers share right now that this is simultaneously the most difficult and the easiest time to become enlightened as a human being to to come into alignment um with the soul self because shit is so crazy and things are happening so fast and the impetus to to align with you know this rapid modern society is so it's so compelling right and so you know it's easy to get lost in it it's it's so hard to pull ourselves out but just like lifting a really heavy weight at the gym you know i mean for those of you i don't want to use too many gym analogies but when you're lifting heavy weights, the gains are more significant, right? Because your body's being challenged more. And so at our civilization moving at that this pace is a much bigger weight to have to lift right away. So it's very possible that we can actually transform much more quickly if we commit ourselves to this. And no, it's not fun. I mean, people say to me all the time, like, mm, I'm just not a patient person. And it's like, yeah, I, I would have said the same, actually, maybe even more absurd in that I'd say, you know, patient people are just weak people, right? Please do judge me. I, I think I'm completely deserving of this. But um, when we commit to this, and I promise you, it is not going to disappoint you. Um, the the potential for immense growth and, and heart opening and faith and connection to the intelligence of the system right now is so big, just because the, 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 course of the, the current of this river that we're in is moving so fast, right? And and can we try to pull ourselves out of it or or you know in a weird way surrender to it in a sense, right? And say, okay, I let go and I'm not going to impose my will upon this, right? So do this in the grocery store lineup. Do this when you're waiting. Do this when you're feeling a bit irritated. And I mean, there are many different mechanisms that I sort of developed in my own way, uh, you know, through this path. I certainly didn't come up with this on my own, but like, you know, using ujjayi breath from yoga to like slow my breath down. And uh, Huberman talks, um, Huberman Lab, if you haven't listened to it, it's brilliant. But he talks a lot about, um, I think he calls it autonomic sighing or... Um, I think maybe that's the right one. Parasympathetic nervous system sighing basically two rapid inhales in and one long exhale out. And this regulates your nervous system so that you're you're not in that fight, flight, freeze, you know, uh, state, which it happens when we are impatient. When we think that our brain thinks that something's happening at the wrong time, we actually perceive this as a threat, right? The ego thinks that anything that is not falling within its, you know, control or desire for control 
um, is threatening, right? It's actually threatening to its dominance and its, you know, state of righteousness, right? So um, as bizarre as this might seem, try try noticing the next time that you're feeling impatience, you, you will notice that your nervous system is at a highly escalated state and, and you know, you're, you're mad, right? You're in fight, flight, freeze, right? So doing some sighing, doing some long breath can be a way to practice, you know, releasing the tension of impatience. And then, as shitty as this might seem, feel it. Feel the impatience. What does it feel like in your body? Now, actually demystify the state of impatience. This was another tool that I would practice with myself of like, what is this, right? As I mentioned, you'll, you're going to find that your nervous system is very activated, but notice what's going on in your mind and your body. And it, it will sound, and I, I say this very lovingly, it will sound very childish. It will sound young, right? Your mind will be telling you a story that will be very adolescent in quality, right? Of like, well, they shouldn't be doing it like this. And I want it like this. And blah, blah, blah. Like it's, it's amazing, I think, I find when I notice my mind doing this and I can actually look at it from the, I mean, the seat of the witness or the observer mind and look at my mind just going, and it just wants to like go on and on and on about how it's right and they're wrong and blah, blah, blah. And, and this is actually a really powerful practice, I think, for, you know, the other tools that I've offered and for your whole path is being able to spot your mind when it does that, right? And each of us has, I think, a different um, kind of quality to the, the cognitive manifestations, you know, the way our brain starts thinking when we feel activated like this. And for me, like, it's it's very much like judgment-based. Like, I'm just a judgmental asshole on, you know, when I'm in that state of just like, oh, I can't believe that they would do this and blah, 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 blah. And years ago, um, this is slightly embarrassing to admit, but I'll put it out there because um, let's all put our shit out and, you know, admit what our brains are doing. I used to have these like grand delusions of beating people up all the time. Like I would imagine being in fistfights with people, like people that I didn't really even know, but that maybe I had some conflict with and or whatever, you know, and and I would actually imagine beating them up and and pay attention to this. Like, notice what your brain does. Does it go into try to fighting them or does it go into beating yourself up, right? I, I know this might seem kind of hard to swallow, but I don't think that there's much difference between wanting to beat someone else up or beating yourself up. It's the same energy. It's just directed in a different way, right? But it's still the same thing. And if your mind does that, notice it. Is, is that what you do when, when impatience is happening? You just start blaming yourself. Like, why are you such an idiot? Why didn't you leave the house earlier? Why did you make this happen? Blah, 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 right? And there there is, a, I think, associated with the whole manifestation field right now, there's a great potential for that happening because we we think, oh, well, I'm making things happen in my life. And then we can beat ourselves up because, oh, I did this. Look, I made this flat tire happen. Uh, no, please don't do that. You know, like, there's a... We're not going to get into this, but there is a very big difference between having faith that things happen at the time that they need to happen and blaming yourself and creating neurotic guilt for somehow creating something that you didn't want and now you get to blame yourself for. And there's a very slippery kind of edge to walk along and maybe we'll explore that down the road. But for the time being, okay, just to reiterate, you know, 
try some mental acrobatics. Try actually saying, maybe you don't know when things should happen or if this is the right thing to be happening. Try actually feeling what your impatience feels like. Notice your nervous system getting activated. No, try some, some regulatory practices like breathing or, I mean, you can try gratitude and blessing in that moment or compassion, right? Think about Tonglen. How many people in the world are feeling impatient right now? Breathe it in. Send them what, you know, and you're going to have to practice cultivating patience, surrender, faith in your body and send that out, right? This is, it's, you know, it's un, an unspeakably powerful medicine practice to do this when you are feeling activated. But you're going to have to notice when you're feeling activated and notice, you know, small times. So no, notice when it's happening and it's just a little bit uncomfortable and practice letting go. Let go of the sense that you know when and how things should happen in your life and watch your life totally transform. Watch your relationship with self and other people transform and, and you will find that quiet, you know, and, and I really hope you've already experienced it. I imagine you probably have in your life that place where the mind is not saying something else needs to be happening right now or something shouldn't be happening that is or whatever, you know, like it's it's a beautiful feeling. So so as you practice this week, after I've given you all of these practices, I'd encourage you to just try these as like explorations, you know, as you move through your life. But you'll also uh, notice there's an audio meditation with a prayer practice, okay? And prayer is, uh, is such a beautiful practice. And I think the, you know, the hyper-rational mind that emerged in Western society and, and as, as Nietzsche said, you know, killed God Tried and is now trying to fill that God-sized hole with with more rationality or science or whatever we want to s stuff in there. Um, we lost prayer, and I think also prayer has been corrupted and kind of manipulated by the the sort of manifestation practices, as like oh, prayer is like me telling you know God, the system, whatever, what I want and how I want it. Right? That's not what prayer is. And so I'm going to walk you through a prayer practice, which is, I think, you know, such a beautiful expression of the melding of the individual will. There is still a will in you, yes, but also of the, the will of all that is, the will of God, the will of the system, right? How do these two things interact, right? Because I don't think that we should just uh, let go completely. I mean, that's not possible. You are going to have responses and you know, cho make choices in your life, right? And that's a, a huge emphasis in shamanic practice is saying, well, how are you making these choices? What choices are you making? What are they aligned with, right? Really investigating um, our alignment. But if we if we think that, you know, our will is everything, we become this solipsistic modern human who says, I, my consciousness is the only thing that matters and, and my perspective is right all the time, right? And, but if we release completely, then I don't think that we're, we're occupying the, the you-sized hole that is in the universe that is meant to be occupied by you, right? And, and prayer as a practice is is a beautiful exploration and, and expression of being able to sit in those two spaces at the same time, right? Is to be able to say, 
here, this is what I would wish or, or pray for or ask for. And I'm, I'm going to walk you through a traditional prayer practice that was gifted to me and taught to me um, and certainly is you know, a very common practice. This is probably not going to be new, but it's a way of praying that um, connects us and leaves still space for our wants and desires. And I mean, we, we still have those. That's okay, right? It's it's just the difference between having those and having the expectation of them being always fulfilled in the time that we want them to be filled. And so prayer is, is, is a very patience-oriented and patience-enhancing practice. And I think that, uh, I hope it'll be useful for you. I hope you are... I intend that all of us are moving through these um, awakening experiences with gratitude and grace and presence. And um, yeah, so much love to you all. And uh, I'll be back here soon. Take care of yourself. and was recorded and produced on the traditional unceded territory of the Northern Sequipnik people. All music, editing and production by Brent Morton at Bell Tower Audio. May our hearts and minds remain open. May we meet this day with equanimity and compassion. May we remember our belonging to this earth, to each other, and to all that is. Mm-hmm.